one of the metrics that I used at the time, I was just above a 2x cash flow versus cost of living. And that to me was very important because I'm very conservative. There was some stuff that was very heavy in cash flow, a little more risky. Some of it wasn't as bad and more like real estate opportunities. It was a mix of a bunch of stuff that I eventually, once I left the corporate world, specifically had to de-risk over time. I didn't have a plan and design this whole thing. So it's not like what a lot of people do. Welcome to Tech Careers and Money Talk. What if you could hang out with experienced tech industry executives, ask them about career growth, equity compensation, investing, financial strategies, and more. Then take an insight or two to guide your own career and lifestyle. Each week on the show, Christopher Nelson shares an in-depth look at how to navigate tech careers and hyper-growth companies, select the right companies to work for, earn equity, and build a passive income portfolio. Christopher is an author, tech exec, and principal and co-founder of Wealthward Capital. His goal is to give you the information you need to grow your career, build wealth, and make an impact. Now, here's Christopher. Welcome to Tech Careers and Money Talk. I'm your host, Christopher Nelson. I've been in the tech industry for 20 plus years, and after climbing my way to the C-suite, working for three companies that have been through IPO, and investing my way to financial independence, I'm here to share with you everything that I've learned and introduce you to people that can help you along the way. Today, I am super excited to introduce you to Jeremy Roll. Jeremy Roll is considered by some to be the godfather of passive investing in the modern era. He is a full-time passive investor for cash flow. That is correct. He invests in private equity. We're talking real estate. We're talking businesses. We're talking different types of assets that provide him cash flow. Today, we're going to hear how he learned about this even in the, the pre-2012 Jobs Act era. You wanna learn more about passive investing, private equity, go back to episode 20, I break it all down for you. In the second half of the episode, you're not gonna to wanna to miss this because we're going to be asking him what he is seeing in the market and also where would he place $500,000 if he had it today with his type of investing. Jeremy always breaks it down. I'm super excited to introduce you to him. Let's go to Jeremy now. All right, welcome to Tech Careers and Money Talk. I'm super excited today to be able to introduce everybody to Jeremy Roll. Jeremy Roll started investing in real estate and businesses in 2002 and then left the corporate world in 2007 to become a full-time passive cash flow investor. He's currently invested in more than 60 opportunities across more than 1 billion worth of real estate and business assets. As the founder and president of Roll Investment Group, Jeremy manages a group of over 1,500 investors who seek passive managed cash flow, cash flowing investments in real estate and business. And he's also the co-founder of Four Investors by Investors, a nonprofit organization that was launched in 2007 with the goal of educating and facilitating networking among real estate investors. Jeremy also has an MBA from Wharton and is an advisor for Realty Mogul, the largest crowdfunding website in the United States. Welcome, Jeremy. Excited to have you here. Yes. Thanks so much for having me on. I, I very much appreciate it. I hope this is helpful for everybody. Well, it will be. So, you know, our audience, it, our listeners are technology employees and many of them are, I find that their portfolios tend to have a lot of equities, have a lot of venture investing, but they don't understand this world. And so this is our opportunity to interview you, who you've had a huge influence in, in myself, being able to start transitioning to private equity and passive investing is the opportunity to share with them your journey and then also uh, what you're seeing in the market today. So I'd love to start off with, you know, when I think, you know, for, for myself, I started getting into uh, 
private equity, passive investing in 2013, sort of post Jobs Act, where we started seeing a lot more information. What I'm really curious about is, you know, for yourself, starting in 2002, how did you start learning about private equity and this type of investing to begin with? Yeah, absolutely. And just for everyone out there, I'm not a financial advisor, investment advisor, accountant, attorney, and so just everything's my just my perspective as an investor. So just just FYI, um, <laughs> definitely not investment advice. So um, what happened with me is for those for those people in tech who are old enough, um, after the dot com crash back in 2001, I was just kind of sick and tired of the stock market for two reasons, and it was really a personality mismatch for me. One is that. Um, I would just, the volatility was not the right fit for me. So watching the market go up and down 30% in a year was the wrong fit for me. I'm just a really low risk, kind of like slow and steady guy mindset. And the other was lack of predictability of where my retirement account would be in 10, 20, 30, 40 years, given that volatility. And so what I kind of concluded was that the stock market wasn't the best fit for me. And mm. so I started to look at different ways to invest. And I came across the concept of focusing on cash flow, um, potentially through real estate, also through other uh, you know, assets. And so I started to learn back in 02 by a combination of networking. And I was also very lucky because a long, long time friends of my family, who I literally grew up with since I was four or five, um, their father had... Um, been syndicating properties and like buying these types of assets already for 10, 20 years at that point. And so I started to invest. It was actually, so it was in Canada. So I'm from Canada. I grew up in Montreal, spent half my life there, half my life in the U.S. where I am now. And I started to invest in Canada, but from the U.S. where I was living um, because I uh, had a very good longstanding relationship with them and I thought I could trust them, but also I'd be able to learn from them to a different degree than an average sponsor. So right. that's how I started to test the waters. And then I started to network. And of course, as you alluded to before, back then, especially with like the internet apps, Jobs Act, so many things have happened in the last 20 plus years. It was a totally different landscape in terms of what you have to do to learn and to find opportunities than it is today. And it's a lot easier today. It is a lot easier. And so, you know, when you when you started doing this, what were some of your your resources that you learned to or sorry, used to learn? underwriting and, and vetting and those types of things, or is it really just trial and error? Yeah, well, it's a good question. And so to me, one of the best ways to learn if you're brand new is what I call opportunity exposure. Yes, you know, there are select courses, some of them are better than others, etc. But to be able to take like 10 or 20 opportunities in one asset class, call it multifamily, just because a lot of people know that, and put them all side by side. And you can not just learn about the underwriting, but even like the investor structure, whether one has a preferred return, let's say nine out of 10 have a preferred return, one doesn't. Like, why not? And what is the difference? Is that one better or worse for you, right? Mm. So looking at everything that stands out and all the commonality, you start to kind of learn the averages, what's standing out, what you should be getting as an investor. And the same thing goes with the underwriting as far as certain expense ratios and you know assumptions for rent and inflation increases and all this type of thing. And so um, I'm a very big fan of that. Now, back then, um, I had to go and find individual opportunities. I had to network in person with people. There was literally no other way to do it. You couldn't really do it online. And so I was very lucky because I lived in Los Angeles. Being a big city, there were a lot of meetings, went on to meetup.com. And I, I, at that time, I didn't have kids. If I wanted to, I had the time to put into it. So I was driving to two to three meetings on average a week to learn all this. And yeah, so this is over a course of like five years. And so mm. it was a lot of work. Um, today, you can log on to a crowdfunding site if you wanted to download literally 10 multifamily opportunities in your pajamas in an hour or less, <laughs> and then print them all and have them side by side like, and never go anywhere, literally. So you just have a cup of coffee next to you. So it's a totally different landscape right now than it was back then. Well, And it sounds like 
reverse engineering, understanding the math was critical, but we also know that there's a big component of this that is, is relationship as people. And that's where I'm sure then you got that from that perspective, because I think sometimes people miss out on that today. And I always try to go back and understand how people learn something, because it sounds like that's where you really got grounded in the basics of I'm going to go there. I'm going to shake hands. I'm going to ask a lot of questions and I'm going to sit down and understand the math. Yeah. And that's a really good uh, point you're making. And I hadn't thought it through, but you know, it used to be that this was 100% in-person relationship based or referral based from a friend of yours who may have seen a deal, right? Now it's, it's very high percentage, potentially even marketing based, right? Whether you're listening to a podcast, you hear somebody and then you go access them or, or see what they're, what they're all about, whether it could be a referral still, but it could be crowdfunding. It could be so many things and it could be that crowdfunding sites marketing to you. And so there's a lot of, um, unfortunately to your point, it's much easier to get caught up in being able to access deals much more easily and do a lot less work or in-person work or even just like due diligence work on them because a lot of stuff is handed to you more on a silver platter. Like you could, and again, I'm not, I'm not trying to pick on any individual right. website or whatever, but for crowdfunding in general, for example, really good option for some people, not as good for others, but you can log on and you get an entire summary of projected returns, IRR, here's 10 documents you could download, et cetera. And theoretically it does accelerate your due diligence, but it's, it's, it's also handed to you on a silver platter and some people will potentially take for face value what they're getting. So let me give you a really good example of what's going on in my mind. So what, back in like 2002, if I were to find something and I, it was a city I may not know, right? So let's say so I find something in Dallas, Texas. I've never been there before or for argument's sake. And it looks like an interesting multifamily deal. Well, now I've got a business plan and it may have a little bit of demographic and business information, but I'm going to automatically in my mind go on there and research it, right? I'm going to go look right. and see, you know, if this person used data from the government, is da private data matching up on employment, average household income, you know, et cetera, right? The problem I find today is that because the presentations are so much more buttoned up, there could be videos associated with it, et cetera. People are taking that in and probably not doing the same degree of due diligence and maybe not even cross-checking things, for example. Right. Is it just being fed to them so much more easily in a way that you can digest so much better rather than holding this physical document? And so to your point, it's, it's a different game today, um, which could lead people to end up moving forward much more quickly and actually in a lot less effort, right? So right. It, you know, if you're putting the time into then drive to a meeting, meet a sponsor, get to know them in person, and then look at their deals. It's a different, a whole different ballgame than just like logging on and actually investing through a crowdfunding platform, never even talking to the sponsor, for example, right? Which is the reality of some of reality today of how some of it happens. So each person's, each person's different. I tend to be a very thorough person, so it tends to match my personality well. But it is easy to fall into the, tra the marketing traps that exist today, for sure. It is. And so, and for you, as you started going through and learning this from the ground up and realizing okay, I want to do due diligence. I want to meet people face to face. And I know that you're very much of an on-site person. Let me go on site. If I'm going to be investing in something, I'm going to be walking the grounds. I'm going to be doing everything. Uh, what, what are some of the other skills? I mean, like if you were to list and say, okay, here are some of the skills that I really built back then that I think are important for people to still leverage today if they want to do due diligence to the level that you do, what would some of those things be? 
Yeah. So a few things coming to mind. Um, first is I have a hard rule. I don't care who it is. I always do background checks on the managing members of the manager entity and, and all anyone who's a managing member, basically. And that has saved me a whole number of times. I feel like, you know, it's funny. I haven't, I don't ask very often to, to the other past investors. I know that you do background checks, but it's really rare that I hear someone doing a background check or even asking me, where do I do them? It just doesn't come up often. So that's that's right. number one, that absolutely critical that I find is not discussed very much. And right? can I ask you a quick question? What what are you looking for in the background check? Yeah, you're looking for a few things actually. So, so and this actually is what the second theme I'm gonna bring in, which is the first thing I do is I actually perform a test on the sponsor. And I say, look, um, I need your name, date of birth, and home address. I'm going to run a background check and I'm not going to run a credit check, but I'm going to run a background check. So it's not going to your credit. You know, it's not going to impact you anyway at all, but I need this right. information so I can actually make sure it's you, especially if you have a common name. Even if not, I'll just say I need to be 100% sure that it's not messing it up and bringing me up some other Jeremy role, right? And so um, some people are hesitant to give the home address. I don't necessarily need their home address, right? I just need their name and date of birth right. uh, and maybe a state or a city. But I ask for that to see how open are they going to be. And then the more important piece is I say to them, is there anything you want me to know before I run your background check? Like any anything you want to explain up front, totally fine. Now, what's interesting about this question is it's a definite test because I've had people who've been bankrupt 10 years ago who say, no, there's nothing you're going to find because they think seven years later it's off their credit history and it's gone. It's never gone. I can find it in the background check. And they purposely didn't tell me. I mean, I doubt they forgot to tell me on something that important, right? <laughs> So I, but on the flip side, I've had very interesting situations where somebody said to me, for example, once it was a long time ago, you might find that I got stopped by the police and there was a gun in my trunk. Okay. And I wasn't supposed to be transporting it, but I have a license for it, et cetera. And so like, in case it comes up, just, so you know, that's something, right? So it really like, it's easy to jump to conclusions. So I always give the person some type of option to explain something, but it's much better if you're getting an explanation. So if I had, if there was a bankruptcy 10 years ago and someone didn't tell me about it, they're pretty much going to be off the list because I feel like God knows what else they're hiding from me. Right. right. But yeah. if some, something comes up, that's a little questionable, that's uncertain. Instead of jumping the gun, I asked them at the same time, if they're hi obviously hiding something and it's a really good test. And so that hiding something is a second point I was going to make, which is I'm very big into reading between the lines and even asking some questions to the sponsor where the answer doesn't matter at all. It's actually how they answer it to mm. them. You understand who you're making a bet on. Right. So right. And to be clear to everybody, who you're making a bet on, in my opinion, is more important than the actual property itself. It's a very close second to property. But who you're making a bet on is very important because you're giving someone control over how they're going to run everything. And so um, I might, um, let me give you a good example. I might say to somebody, I noticed that there's two different ways you can phrase it. So one is, okay, they're assuming 92% occupancy, but the current occupancy is 97% at the property. And But their assumption is 8% vacancy, right? So 92% right. occupancy. I'll say, hey, I noticed that the mar your property is currently 97% occupied. Why is it that you're you're underwriting 92%? I could stop and actually not care about it because that just seems conservative to me, right? Right. But, but it's good to hear. They might say, look, um, they may give you really good information. Oh, there's some construction happening you know, that's going to block the road and mm. we assume it'd be lower. Now there's a whole risk you didn't even know about, right? Right. They could also say, oh, we think this is going to continue. It's been 97% for the past four years. We like to be really conservative. So hopefully we're going to under promise and over deliver for you. Right. Mm. But I also see the opposite. I've seen people at 97 assume 96 or 97. And then mm. you say to them, well, why are you assuming such a high occupancy? And their answer may be, well, you know, I'm not picking on anything, but like we're in Austin, it's been booming mm -hmm. and 
we think it's going to continue to boom. And so we're underwriting that. Well, that's someone who is using very aggressive projections, right? It, it, sometimes it's obvious as to why it's in there and sometimes it isn't. That's why I was giving that example. It's really important to dissect that, but also to understand how they're thinking and who you're making a bet on. Because the number one thing I'm trying to do is assess based on the documents in my discussions. Am I making a bet on someone who's conservative and is looking to underpromise and overperform, right? Mm -hmm. To build long-term mm -hmm. relationships with investors. Or am I dealing with someone who's a good marketer who is being aggressive mm -hmm. in their numbers, who is actually probably going to overpromise, underdeliver, but doesn't care because they have such a good marketing machine, they're going to go on to the next investor. That's right. one of my main goals. And you have to do that by reading through reading uh, in between the lines sometimes. So that's another piece that I would say is very, very important. I also have a hard rule that I won't invest with someone unless I've met them at least once in person. And that is because of a gut check. So I find that beyond the background check, the gut check can, you know, has definitely, it's interesting because there's been times where I've gotten on a plane and I've said, based on my conversations, I'm just not sure about this. But then meeting the person in person, it's got me over the line because of the positive gut check. And then, of course, it's a negative gut check, which can go the other way, right? But right. The point is, in my opinion, the gut check is really critical. I feel like it's definitely helped me a lot over the years. Of course, that's intangible. So there's a, there's a whole bunch of things that are important that probably aren't obvious and that, like, it's not just about taking the business plan, reading it, and making a decision. There's a lot, you know, if you want to really try to optimize, there's more to it for sure. There is. And I think some of those key skills and really focusing on the operator, I think, is a huge, huge takeaway because ultimately when you have economic headwinds, when you have challenges, it's going to be the operator that's going to have to navigate this asset, this business plan through these things. So that's where that's the priority. I also know that going through the math, the underwriting and vetting all of the assumptions, right? Because ultimately the math is driven by the assumptions. And I think this is where I've seen some people get it wrong because they're like, oh, let me look at the end result. Okay, let's back up and go, what's driving the end result? It's usually a core set of assumptions as you just called out. And yep. that's really the, the rich conversation to have with the operator is understanding what are those assumptions and why? And then, and I learned this from you, is then you go double check and you say, what's, what's, what are different sources of data that can back up that math that's going to give me a level of comfort that that's the truth? But, but it's, even how you dissect the assumptions is important. So for example, because it can tell you, again, intangible things. So um, some operators will say, okay, I'm using a 3% expense inflation. And what they'll do is they'll take every single row of expenses and they'll just multiply it by 1.03, right? Easy right. math. But some of them will say, okay, I'm using 3% expense inflation, except medical uh, health insurance is going up at 8% a year. So I'm actually going to adjust that line, right? Mm. And snow removal has been going up at 5% per year. Now they'd still keep certain things at that 3% level because those are the standard ones, but they'll go in and actually make all these tweaks. That tells you, okay, I'm dealing with someone who is more detail oriented. And when they're going to be on the mm. ground running the property, they're going to be more detail oriented, right? So it's not just a question of taking an expense ratio and saying, okay, I'm investing in apartments at 45%. It looks about right. The expenses, right? Just the bottom line looks right. Everything looks like it's reasonable. Um, you have to, if you really want to optimize, you got to get into like the real nitty gritty of that. That's right. To understand because ultimately the devil's in the details, meaning that, you know, how, how that operator is going to operate the property is going to be in that level of detail. And yep. The reason, and this is where I think it's important for people to understand is this portfolio is your income. And so the reason that you are so conservative is because that's going to be the check that pays you. And so you you are ultimately this conservative and your focus when it comes to real estate, private equity investing is on cash flow. You're not investing for appreciation for anything that, you know, in, in this core part of your portfolio. 
Yeah, that's a really good point because I, I tell people, look, there's a thousand ways to invest. None of them are wrong. It's a question of personality fit. Uh, frankly, people who invest in literally land deals or just ground up developments, I've never invested in one ever. Um, they're gonna, they may do better than me long term on a return basis, right? But I'm looking for that predictable cash flow because I literally want to go to sleep tonight, wake up tomorrow. Not much has changed because I live off the cash flow. And so that's my profile. And that's what makes me be very um, specific about how I'm reviewing all these things. Right. And so when for you, as you as you got started in this, what what were some of the, the key indicators that you saw? Wait, I can actually do this full time. Yeah, well, it's actually funny because there's a lot of people I talk to in corporate world and I was in the corporate world for over 10 years, you know, just for just you guys know who's, who are listening. My last two jobs were at Disney headquarters and Toyota headquarters. So I, I'd worked with some big companies and my intention in going into this type of investing was never to get out of the corporate world and never to generate the cash flow to get out of the corporate world. It was actually to have the W-2 and the more predictable retirement side that was growing. Okay. Right. So I didn't actually... Um, have a plan to get out. I didn't say, okay, it's a five-year, 10-year plan like a lot of people do, which is fantastic. Uh, I actually had a last straw moment with my manager when I got promoted into a new division and I just couldn't deal with you know, this whole new situation. And so I actually had enough cash flow built up to live off of um, if I wanted to use it, but it was being used to reinvest in et cetera. And so I kind of took a risk and left the corporate world as a result. Um, I will tell you that one of the metrics that I used at the time was um, I was just above a 2X cash flow versus cost of living. And that right. to me was very important because I'm very conservative. And so if some of it stops, you're still okay, right? Mm. Um, and there was other aspects to it as well. Um, there was some stuff that was very heavy in cash flow, um, a little more risky. Some of it wasn't as bad and more like the type of real estate opportunities we're talking about. It was a mix of a bunch of stuff that I eventually, once I left the corporate world, specifically had to de-risk over time because now that I was living off of full time. But it wasn't I didn't have a plan and design this whole thing. So it's not like what a lot of people do. Got it. I want to get back to that 2X. I think that that's really interesting because then with the 2X, because I think some people, they start calculating, they say, what do I need to live off of? I want to replace the paycheck. Then they get there, they replace the paycheck, but it could put strain on the system because there's no margin for error, number one. And then there's also not additional cash flow to continue to invest, right? Because ultimately the engine becomes more stable and you're continuing to expand your 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 base and your output of cash flow when you have additional cash flow to invest so i think that 2x number is really interesting well the 2x does give you some cushion right because it gives you the right. 1x cushion so, so if it goes as planned it does give you that additional amount but one thing we really haven't discussed is two things one is that theoretically over time um it's interesting if you look at the math let's say that someone assumes 3% expense inflation and 3% revenue or um, you know rent inflation. It, there's a gap that starts to widen because it compounds so that it's not like you're earning the, the same amount of cash flow at the end. It's actually increasing um, right. because your expenses are only at, at X percent of your revenues. So with mm. the math, your cash flow is going up over time. Uh, right. Hopefully keeping up with your, with your living expenses, sometimes it could exceed it. The other thing we haven't talked about is that even though I don't invest for appreciation, what ends up happening is that because I try to go into more conservative scenarios that have like fully amortized loans, not necessarily like 10 years of interest only in the loans, et cetera, mm. and they're longer term loans. If I'm in a deal for 10 years, very often what's happening is over 10 years, you have two things happen that are positive. One is that you've actually paid down a bit of the mortgage over time, um, which which can build up equity. And two is that you often have a property that's worth more after 10 years than not because of inflation, general inflation. Mm. And so once that exits and you have to reinvest it, you're now starting at a higher base. And so and then you're optimizing what you're earning off off that equity. So um, it can it can kind of work and compound over time as long as you to your point, if you're at one X 
that could be a challenge. But, and to me, the ultimate is 3X. Like to me, the, the goal was always 3X because mm. to me, it's 3X. It's not just about the reinvestment. It's just about the cushion of certain things stop. That's my bigger concern, frankly, in the short term than anything, right? Um, to, co- to cover the cost of living. But at 3X or more, you're in a really great place where you can have a quarter of your stuff stop. You're still at a nice margin and you still have a lot of cash flow to reinvest. Oh, that's great. And so what, what do you... I, I do want to try and um, take this to to the next you know um, concept, which is really around you know thinking about how do you how do you structure and, and build your portfolio because portfolio construction is essential when you are looking for this to to live off of. And so, how did you start? Obviously, you had somebody who was in some level of multifamily syndication. You started there. When did you start branching out to other assets, and how does that you know impact you know sort of what are assets and in, in proportions that you leverage in your portfolio today? Yeah, great question. So like, this is a very personal decision. Um, so I'll, I'll answer the question, but it doesn't mean it's the right fit for anybody else necessarily. Right. I was so turned off by the stock market that I literally rotated all my money from stocks and bonds into cash flow between 02 and 07. Mm-hmm. And so meaning that by the, by the end of 07, I had no actual public shares. Um, and so, um, I would say the exception is I may have invested one startup that IPO'd or whatever, but like, I don't even really count that because it's not what we're really thinking about here. Right. So I, 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 I was and have been a hundred percent into these e-liquid type investments and cash flow focused stuff. 1% of my portfolio is in higher risk, like startups. It's, it's, it's a side thing I do. It's very little. I'm not looking for rent. It's people I have to make a bet on who I know. It's not like me going and looking at you know deals coming to me right. like that. But so I'm pretty much 100% into this illiquid situation. I don't necessarily recommend that. It's probably, frankly, theoretically not the smartest thing. But I always felt like because I was doing this full time mm-hmm. that I can maximize my overall long-term return uh, by being in this type of stuff, meaning I think that this outperforms the stock market. And so by being 100% in this, um, I, I'm very comfortable with that concept because I'm highly diversified, which is critical. I'm in over 60 different positions at the moment. That's overdone but it still gives me a lot of comfort, right? It's not something I would recommend for people either. And it's not normal. Um, and so most normal people, I suppose, will have some more liquid assets like stocks and bonds and more of this e-liquid piece. But I think to answer your question, you know, you've got to take into account the fact that the e-liquid portion of your portfolio can have challenges, right? So one challenge yeah. I have is that because I have 100% illiquidity and a lot of these K-1 tax forms with depreciation, my income is completely out of whack and that it, you know, I go to get a traditional loan, it doesn't work. So it's frustrating, mm. right? I have to get a non-traditional loan because the banks get confused that even though I earned $100 from this property this year with depreciation and expense flow through, it shows negative five. Right. And it, <laughs> I, I literally tried to submit for a loan and they told me I make negative income. And I was like, okay, buddy, whatever you say, you know, right. like, and, and you're I like, mean, well, that, and that's a good thing. Yeah. That's a good thing from a tax perspective, but look at right. the income line. Yeah, that's funny. I know, but it's still extremely frustrating. Right. So yeah. it was just, it was crazy the way they calculated. Anyway. Um, so that's one thing for sure. Hmm. Another thing is that I, um, when I get older and I'm still relatively, I'm just turning 50 right now, but probably in the next 10 years, I'm going to start to diversify out of this hundred percent, you know, uh, illiquid focus, because right. I think the liquidity is going to be important when I get older. And so mm. I'm still okay with it today, but there's a point at which it won't be okay based on my age. And so my point in telling you this is when I started, I was very young and that wasn't really an issue for me at the time. Okay. So there's a lot of factors that have to, you know, mm. be thought about. So I can't really recommend uh, necessarily. Sure. I, I think that, I think the more important thing I can say is that whatever 
uh, piece of this portfolio you create for yourself, whether it's 5%, 10%, 30 or 100, whatever it is, please be diversified. I cannot stress the importance of diversification, whatever that means to you. Uh, most people tend to do 10 or 20 deals to get properly diversified. It seems like that just seems to be the average that I've seen. I am much higher than that for comfort level and also because I do this full time. But the one thing, so my philosophy on diversification is that when I am investing passively into these illiquid investments, I'm trading control for diversification. Mm. So I actually get the benefit of diversifying into a lot of stuff by not putting a huge chunk of money into buying this one house or whatever it is, right? right. And so, but when I'm going to get to diversification, I need to be diversified across asset classes, geographies, and operators. That's my right. own opinion. And so if you're only going into two or three or four deals, then all of a sudden, now, I want to be clear. Your risk is higher by investing in these things because you're giving control to somebody else. You do not have control. You cannot decide to refinance, sell, get a certain type of mortgage. You have no control over that. You may have a very tiny vote, but it's typically going to be a very small percentage and not very consequential. So in order to reduce the risk of giving someone else control, you have to get the diversification. If you only go into two or three or four team things, you've now increased your risk by being in this type of investing, giving someone control, and you've not diversified your risk back down so you're even higher risk than you could be because you're not diversified properly. And the best example I can give anybody is, you know, a Madoff type situation. If you put 100% of your money with one person or one thing, you can lose it all. And so the diversification is absolutely key and you want to help to reduce your risk as a result of being in these things that are illiquid where you're giving someone else control. Yeah, I even I even read a heartbreaking story of, uh, you know, that meltdown that, that was in... Um Houston recently is they interviewed somebody who was an IT professional, which I came from. So it really struck me hard, but this person put, you know, a, a million, so roughly half of their savings into a oh, single, wow. single deal. Yeah. yeah, that's, I just, I, the, the reason why I hate, I hate hearing that for many reasons, but the thing that always kills me about that is that it was completely not preventable in that, like you couldn't prevent the fraud from happening. But it was preventable in that like the person who put the money in didn't have to expose themselves like that. They had the choice. Right. And so just please be careful with your choices in this because no matter what, there's always one percent. Like if you if you said to me, Jeremy, tell me how this perfect deal that I see on paper can go bad, I can give you twenty way what I call one percent risks. I'm gonna just I'm just gonna rattle a few off because some people people don't think about it. There's fraud, mismanagement, Ponzi scheme. There is stuff that is not fraudulent at the beginning that turns fraudulent or mismanaged or Ponzi scheme, right? Ponzi right. scheme sometimes are completely legitimate up front and they turn. Um, there is, you know, property burnt down due to a fire. Um, insurance company won't pay it out because they say it's suspicious. You're spending four years in court trying to win and you don't win. And you now you've actually had money out the door on top of it all to actually be able to afford the lawyers. I mean, I can go on and on about like earthquake, flood, what I, just stuff happens, right? It does. I think that, do you remember the story? I remember you telling the story of, um, I think you shared this, we were at a conference over lunch one day, as you said, you had this perfect deal, everything was going well, but it was on sort of an island and they started doing construction on this bridge. Yes. Yeah. It, it, it wasn't that it was an island. There was a bridge. That was a senior housing deal. It was actually, I could tell the story if you want. Yeah, uh, yeah it's actually, go for it. It's the only foreclosure I've ever been in actually. So uh, that was in 2012 when it got foreclosed. So I invested in a 303 unit uh, student housing ap apartment building, right first property across from State University campus. And this was actually in January 2008. It was a loan assumption and it was a really good deal because of that. And I thought there was going to be a recession, but I said to myself, this looks interesting, very experienced sponsor. They own 17 other properties. People tend to go back to school back then 
um, you know, during a downturn, if they lose their jobs or whatever, or they're like, they're trying to get into the job market, they're maybe going to go and get that additional education. So that was my theory. Theory held very well. We were like 100% occupied for years through the recession, everything. So in, in the beginning of 2012, the loan is due in the fall of 2012, the beginning of 2012, the owners and all the residents get a letter from the city and they say, look, this is a you know cold climate. We have to fix the bridge to campus that you get to campus with during the summer. But don't worry, it's going to be done in time when you get back from school, like we promise. So <laughs> a lot of students were like, I don't know if I'm, this is going to be okay or not. So we went from a 99% occupancy or 100 or whatever to like 65% occupied, right? Um, and so that was domino number one, right? Because often in these more stabilized deals, it takes several dominoes to fall like a plane crash. You don't have like a plane crash from one problem. It's like multiple domino system mm. problem, right? typically on a newer plane, right? Say so, so that domino fell. Now, had it so then um, we knew we were going to be well occupied the year after because you know they were going to fix the bridge and then you know we we didn't really do well in the renewals for for the season, but then it was going to be fine next year. So then of course the loan happened to be due that fall. That was domino number two. Just bad timing with when the loan was due, mm -hmm. right? Completely unforecastable. Number three domino that fell is that the lender would not extend the loan for a year. I guess they wanted the property back because they kind of knew what they had, right? So three dominoes fall in what seems like a perfectly stable scenario, mm. a matter of months, and the, there was nothing that could really be done with it. And so the property got foreclosed. Interesting enough, the outcome of that was even though it got foreclosed, I didn't lose my equity, which I know sounds weird. So the sponsor happened to transfer all of the investors in, uh, out of their own equity into another deal, first property across their state university campus, another state. And oh, that wow. process, yeah, that process took a year as legal and accounting and tax and all this. Um, so no cash flow for a year. I'm still in that deal today and it's still doing really well. The, the one I got transferred to. Wow. And, yeah. And actually, honestly, there was a partial recourse loan that the operator got hit with. Um, and they came out of pocket for all the equity from the investors that were in there. And the reason is because they own most of their properties themselves with that investors and they felt really bad. So they had the network to do it. And what's important to, to learn from that, it's very unusual, but first of all, they had no legal obligation to do it. They had the net worth to do it. But just because those two things were the case, like it doesn't mean they actually were going to do it, right? Because they had no legal, even though they had a net worth, it doesn't mean they were going to do it. It depends on their personality. Right. So that's why, you know, Assessing a personality, uh, and obviously that was some luck on my my side, but assessing personality is really important for multiple reasons. And actually, all things being equal, it is always better to invest with someone with a higher net worth because they can choose to provide loans, short-term loans, low-interest loans, cover problems, rather than doing a cash call if they ever come up. Um, they can make that choice. Sometimes they won't choose to do it, but sometimes they will. It depends on their personality. Um, mm -hmm. So you know, a lot of lessons there. I'm sorry it was a long story, but you know, it. but again, it's a 1% risk. There's no way to forecast when the bridge is going to close and be repaired. And there's no way to forecast it's going to happen at the same time as when the loan is due and that the lender won't extend the loan. But these things can happen. So, that, you know, these diversification pieces are really important. Right. And that and that's why I felt like it was important. I just remember I got a lot out of that story. I thought it was really important to share that because, again, what I think we're trying to say is the 1% thing can happen, number one. And number two is doing your due diligence, understanding who the operator is, who's sitting across from you. I mean, that made all of the difference. That could have been a goose egg for you. Okay, great. I'm well diversified, but I lost on that one. But now yep. it sounds like it turned into a win because you you also had the right partners on the other side. Yeah, it was it was a little bit of luck too, um, but because you never know what someone's going to do until they're really pressed to do it, right? That's right. Um, 
But yeah, but again, the, the real takeaway there is what you just said, both who you're making a bet on and a diversification piece, which I can't stress enough. Well, so we're going to transition right now from the first half of the show, understanding a little bit about how you got here. I really want to take uh, the second half of the show and really focus on what's going on in the market today, right? I know that you're an active investor. I know that you go to a lot of conferences, you go on site, you're managing all of your investments. What what are you making in this, you know, high inflation, high interest environment today? Yeah. So we're recording this, uh, you know, September of 2023. And um, it's interesting because there's been a lot of talk in the media about soft landing, no landing, economy's fine, jobs are high, GDP growth looks good. In my opinion, if I just look at all the traditional charts and markers of how long it normally takes once the Fed starts to raise rates until there's worse on worse employment and when there's a recession, how long it takes when, since when the yield curve inverts until we probably get a recession or what the time range is and so many other factors, how long it takes since when lenders start to, to tighten and when that really takes its full effect, everything is converging into the next three to six months of a high probability of recession starting in that timeline. Could be longer, mm. but... Um, and then, of course, we layer on stimulus. Um, Fed, Fed itself has a report saying that they believe that the excess stimulus um, savings is actually going to be done in September with consumers completely out. Oh, um, right. Yeah, th there's other factors, too. So everything is actually really nicely aligning, almost like textbook, that in the next three to six months, we will likely have a recession. How, 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 how bad it'll be, all that, I couldn't tell anybody. I just know that when you have a recession, some things typically happen. And that is you typically have a more unemployment, people losing jobs. They either have to, from an apartment perspective, I, I always like to talk about it, which is easy. Most people understand it. We could talk about right. any asset class, but just take that one. People lose their jobs. They either have to take on a roommate or they have to kind of go live back home or downgrade. So you have higher vacancy, which ends up reducing rents. And if you do reduce rents, your net operating income, your profit goes down. But what's happening, what's very interesting about this particular time is that we have this happening at the same time where inflation is still very high and will likely continue to be high for a while. Right. And so you're gonna have um, your net operating income mm. go down by lower revenue with increasing expenses at the same time. And then you're gonna combine that with the fact that the Fed likely isn't finished raising rates according to you know Wall Street and the odds, which I agree with and believe. Um, we have just at this exact time and we start to see inflation is starting to tick back up. Regular CPI just went up in the last CPI report yesterday, it increased substantially from, I think, 3.2 to 3.7%, if I remember correctly, huge jump. Part of that has to do with oil. Oil is going up, it's heading up, it's at 90, it's probably going to head towards 100 because of supply constraints. Um, uh, Russia, Saudi Arabia, they just extended oil cuts for many more months that they wow. said. So oil's going up, which contributes to the cost input of a lot of things that we consume. Um, and so, and another thing that's really critical is that if you look at inflation in general, a lot of the media is focused on CPI, the general CPI, which mm -hmm. has come down a ton. But what the Fed is focused on is not CPI. It's actually focused on what they call core PCE. Um, and they actually even more, more specifically core, core PCE minus housing. And so that has actually been literally flat the whole year between 4 and 5% jumping up and down the entire year since January. They've gotten nowhere on that from their perspective. Mm. That's why they're still focused on raising rates. That's actually the primary motivation, along with the fact that the job market is still so strong. So to me, we're lining up in a position where interest rates are probably going to still trickle up. We're probably, and these are all probabilities. That's what I have to right. work off. So right. probably interest rates going up, probably recession, probably job losses going up, 
probably revenues coming down on most, if not all real estate, probably lower real estate prices in the next 12 months because of a combination of a recession and revenues coming down, expenses going up and interest rates going up are actually going to reduce the multiples even more in terms of the property values. We're going to have a compound situation of net operating incomes down while the multiple that you're going to get on your property is also down. And so that to me is means lower asset values in the next 12 months, which is why I'm mostly on the sidelines, except for very unique situations waiting for this to happen. Um, and so that's where I land with where we are today. But to me, like from where I stand and the amount of reading I do every day, it's textbook, very high probability recession in the next three to six months. And again, I know you don't have a crystal ball, but I mean, are you seeing this as a potential reset for some real estate prices and a, a potential buying opportunity in the future? Absolutely. I mean, that's what happens at the end of cycles. Um, right. We've already seen a lot of assets go down 20 plus percent in value just because of interest rate increases, but we haven't seen the second domino yet. We haven't seen the recession effect yet that will likely reduce property values further, even at the mm. same multiple. If you argue the multiple staying the same, which I'm not arguing that, but if we are arguing that, then your net operating income has a high probability of being lower in 12 months than it is today. That building is likely going to be worth less on the same multiple in 12 months if we have a recession, which is the probability, high probability scenario. Right. So yeah, that, that's probably what's ahead. And so that will uh, potentially bring some good opportunities to investors who are being patient. I know... Uh you know, in conversations and hearing you speak that you've been on the sidelines when it comes to multifamily, except for different special deals. I, you know, just to, to bring it to light for people, there are uh, different tax abatement deals where you're, you're actually getting a large decrease in, in taxes because you are uh, providing affordable housing and other things. These create some different economics uh, and those are special deals, but I'm talking about the bread and butter. Cause when, when we think about private equity, the bread and butter, the meat and potatoes, whatever you want to call it, the right down the middle asset class that I think people really understand and get into right away is multifamily. And um, and so where, you know, do you see that as as an asset class that that could be resetting in an oppor opportunities coming in the future? And when do you think would be a, you know, what, what are you going to look at as indicators? Because I know let's talk about yep. not guessing in the future, but what are you looking at as indicators to say, okay, now I would I would start looking at deals. Yeah. So um, first thing to note is that apartment um, apartment values are down about 20%. I'm just averaging, you know, the right. past year. Or two. So the, there already are some significant discounts. But the challenge I have is, again, that's the first domino to me. The second domino is what's going to happen during the recession and how much more that's going to impact the values, plus increasing interest rates still. And so um, here's what's interesting. Apartment rents are down already just under 5%, 4.9% in Vegas and Austin. And they're down, you know, I think 3% in Atlanta. Some major cities that had a lot of a big boom and are typically more cyclical, they're also down, I think, 4 or 5% in Phoenix. And so these are the leading uh, indicators for us because kind of like San Francisco, San Francisco on the housing market side is always a leading indicator. It's the one, one of the markets that goes down the first because mm -hmm. it has such a big run up. And it tells us that everything else is probably going to come down at some point. We're seeing the rents already go down in some of the leading indicator cities that are more volatile. That tells us that the rents are eventually going to follow. This would be even before a recession in most of the other markets, right? So even in multifamily, I think it's very much at risk of, again, reduced revenues at the same time of multiples going down. You have a compounded uh, effect that's going to reduce the value of properties. Right. So I do think if you're patient in that on the bread and butter deals, uh, you're, I think you're taking a lot of risk right now. And what's so fascinating about the current timing is that if you agree there's a high probability recession and starting sometime in the next six months, call it, 
or let's say by the second half of next year, does it make sense to go into your bread and butter deal today or does it make sense to wait just a small time and get much more predictability of what's happening? Right. Right. And for me, it's always going to be the latter because I'm low risk. It depends on your risk tolerance. So what are asset classes that you see? I, I mean, I, I want to ask this question in two ways. Number one is what asset classes do you see weathering the storm well? And what asset classes would you consider investing in today? Well, weathering the storm well is all relative because you have to re assume rents down in most asset classes during a recession. You can make exceptions. You can make exceptions, for example, in senior housing, certain types of senior housing. If it's uh, private pay high end, you may right. not take too much of a dip, especially in a low supply market. Um, if it's Even if it's public pay, which is like Medicare, you may not take a dip because that's being paid for in some type of inflation increasing environment. Right. Right? You do have a problem with your expenses continuing to go up, et cetera, and you mm -hmm. may have a problem with finding labor, and there's all kinds of issues in that asset class, but that's one coming to mind that may weather things decently. There's an argument to be made that student housing across from very large campuses that have big demand will continue to fare well even a recession, especially mm -hmm. if you're very close to campus and you're more in demand. It's all about the demand versus supply, right? And so some of those could do well. I will say that I am a little concerned about student housing because I normally get into like a longer term 10 year fixed rate loan. And that's just for my predictability. Right. I don't know where student house, where, where, um, you know, demand for universities is going to be or colleges mm. in 10 years from now, given the trends that are happening, the cost, the online education, uh, people trying to get creative about reducing the cost by going to community college, et cetera. So it's not a good fit for me, but for someone willing to take the risk, it may weather the current short-term storm very well. They're just right. less predictability in the long term, right? There are some asset classes that are the exact opposite, right? You have um, hotels, which mm. during a downturn, people tend to travel less for personal reasons and business travel goes down because budgets go down. Right. You have to assume that's not going to fare well, right? Office, some companies are going to close. You have to assume the vacancies are going to go up in office space, not a good asset class, right? Retail, some retailers are going to close. Again, mm. not a fantastic asset class. So, And there's some that are just in between, like, uh, self-storage, depending on the market and supply, because that's very important, mobile home parks, apartments, those tend to be more mid-ground um, that they're going to fare better than, for example, office and retail most likely, but they may not be quite as obvious as student housing um, mm. or, uh, or senior housing. But the problem is that the predictive, so it's short-term versus long-term, right? Because in the long-term, I'm very bullish on apartments in the right location with the right operator. I'm very bullish on mobile home park demand. But mm. in the short term, I'm not as bullish, right? And they right. may fare, you know, they may fare the recession better than some asset classes, but I'm not looking to just fare it better. I'm just trying to be careful and sidestep some, you know, reductions in cash flow. So I'm waiting. And and what do you think about uh, you know, some of these private equity businesses that, that you can purchase? So I know um ATMs is an asset class that is more of a I think of it more of buying a business than you do um you know, buying a real estate asset, uh, laundry mats and some of those things as well. Yeah, that's a great question. So I, I think you're asking me because I've been investing in ATM uh, opportunities since 2008. So I have over 15 years experience in that particular space. I've been very fortunate. I've done extremely well. If you have to ask me my single best cash flowing long term average annualized return, it's ATMs. Um, mm. So um, but the problem is that, you know, when you're investing, so ATMs are depreciating assets, right? Right. Um, it's a, it's literally a computer. It's a it's computer chip, a screen, a bill feeder, a keyboard, and a case, right? And so it's depreciating to almost zero, like a computer would. And so 
when you're making a bet on those types of businesses, you're making a bet on a cash flow stream as opposed to an asset based uh, right. cash yep. flow stream, right? And so it's a business business based cash flow stream. That has more, higher risk because you can't just fall back on the asset values. You have to assume they're going to depreciate, unlike a real estate property, which may appreciate over time, right? Right. And so I think those could be the right fit for the right people, depending on your risk profile. I tend to layer them in as a blended risk for myself, but um, it it depends on the scenario that you know in terms of what we're looking at. Some of those businesses can do very well with the right operator. Um, some of them are very sustainable during a downturn. You know, you mentioned uh, laundry, I think, you know, I don't yeah. really, I'm not invested in it yet. So I don't know how it does during a downturn. Is there quite mm -hmm. as much demand for it? I could tell you with ATMs in 2008, I experienced about a 15% revenue reduction in the ATMs on average that I was in. Mm -hmm. um, but because there's so much margin, it wasn't really a big deal, you know? Um, right. And so that was fine. Uh, but um, I do think the timing is challenging though, because the best time to buy a business or get involved in the acquisition of a business is the lowest multiple, right? right? And the worst times at the highest multiple, the lowest multiple is going to be in the middle of a recession when everyone's scared and there's less money actually investing into these deals. So we're about to be at a time where it's going to be interesting to look at those. But I would still tell people to wait at the moment. What about debt funds? What about getting, you know, is this the time that you see as an opportunity to get into the debt side, especially from cash flow? Now, I realize you're not holding an asset, so you're going to need to get your depreciation or something from from elsewhere, but from a core cash flowing asset or cash flowing investment, where do you yeah. see uh, debt participation? Yeah. So just to be clear, I don't normally invest in on the debt side and debt funds. And the reason is because I target the lower risk spectrum of equity. And mm -hmm. because I'm already in lower risk, because a lot of people are kind of debt is synonymous with reducing your risk. You're in first position, you can take over an asset. So the risk is reduced, especially if it's not at 100% loan to value, for example. Um, but if I'm going to invest in something that's already got a lot of predictable cash flow, it's existing cash flow going into, it's already exists and stabilized. I'd like to have the upside potential as well on right. top of it. And you don't get that on the debt side. So just to let everybody know, I don't normally target debt funds myself. That being said, what I have seen happen in the last 12 to 24 months is people have realized that equity is risky right now and they've shifted to debt and they think that that's reducing their risk. And in some ways it is. Here's the problem. Two problems. One is that I've seen some hard money funds um, in the last two, three, four years that had, they were projecting 10 to 12% returns. And I see some of them projecting six to 8% returns and they look pretty similar. When you dig into it, the difference was that the hard money funds were taking on leverage on their own debt. They're actually mm -hmm. leveraged. That was actually highly, in fact, it was much more common to find that because it was hitting that 10% double digit marketing number to investors. Mm -hmm. And to define the six to eight percent, and most people I knew were choosing the ten to twelve percent instead of the six to eight percent, right? Right. But I think, but but trust me, a lot of times I ask people, did you do you know if there's leverage in that fund? And they say, I don't know, even though they invested in it, they don't know. Mm. And so you have to be very careful in these debt funds and make sure there's no leverage on those funds. And if there is, understand the risk because that can really blow you up. That's number one. That happened a lot just to be able to juice returns because the returns until interest rates were increased were so low that they weren't attracted enough to really get a lot of investors. So that was the way oh, that the, that was the solution that operators took. The other thing I'll say about debt that's critical is I think a lot of people tend not to think ahead enough. And like say this recession and, and you know, what happens in a recession? Rents go down, the expense is still going up, NOI goes down, blah, 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 right? Value of the building goes down, compounded effect. Okay, do you want to be the lender on that building right now? Mm. Maybe. If it's at a 30% loan to value, yes. If it's at a 75% loan to value, which was highly common to right. a year or two ago, no. And furthermore, if you're going to look at a debt fund, be very careful because the fund may have been open for two or three years now, and you're investing in all these assets that were originated mm. during pricing. That's actually happening too. And so if you said, 
I'm going to get into a debt fund that's launching right now. We're not going to go above 60% loan to value. It's going to be first position only. It's going to be in these specific cities, et cetera. That starts to become interesting. Right. But there's a lot of very grayish stuff to consider out there. If you're looking at an existing debt fund, be very careful right now. The best time to invest in debt is the beginning of a cycle when you have the equity values increasing. The worst time is at the end of a cycle. The cycle hasn't reset yet. So you have to mm. keep that in mind. Be very careful right now. I have a question for you. We're talking about risk. And one of the things that comes to mind is, you know, as we've been seeing uh, some of the challenges in the Southwest when it comes to water, how do you, how do you think that some of this environment is going to play into, you know, I know you have a long-term view of investments into, you know, larger metros like, like Phoenix yep. and Southern California. Yep. Great question. I love this question because it forces people to think long-term mm -hmm. and uh, I suspect a lot of people investing in some of those markets right now are not really considering it too heavily. Um, I don't have much an opinion on it because I don't invest in Phoenix typically where I know that's kind of a very big, you know, I don't typically invest in Vegas, which from what I've actually, the little research I've done, it seems like Vegas has done a fantastic job of mitigating the future water problems. Like I don't think there is one at the moment, even though you think there might be. Right. Um, I personally, so I look for predictability, right? And if I don't have 10 years of predictability to make me confident, I won't be in that market. It's just that simple because mm -hmm. I can look at other markets. So for someone like me, mm -hmm. knowing that there could be a problem in five or 10 years is already enough to like make me just look at another deal. So that's how I would handle that challenge myself. If I can't get 100% comfortable with that long-term possible lack of predictability and whatever it is, then it doesn't make sense for me because of my risk profile. So one of the questions that uh, I know I, I let some, some of my friends know that they're you're going to be on the interview today. And they said, you got to ask Jeremy this question, which is if you had $500,000 to place right now and you can place it anywhere, you know, whether that's yeah. liquid, ill with liquid, what have you, where would you place that $500,000? Um, okay. So first thing I would do, if you handed me cash and said, what yep. are you going to do with it today? You have, you have to do something with it right now. What are you going to do? First thing I'm going to do is I'm going to go buy shorter term treasuries uh, on the secondary market, three to four months, which is actually what I'm doing in my own cash. Okay. That's what I've been doing for, about over a year now um and uh yeah i think it was last summer i started and i laddered them so that they're all coming due you know different weeks and there's about a three four months of laddering and so i'm constantly buying new treasuries every couple of weeks basically i'm having to turn mm -hmm. them every couple of weeks so that's number one okay at the moment you you're at about like 5.5 percent 5.48 percent on those right now it depends on the day at the moment okay right. that's going to vary every day um, and by the way, that's, that's federally, uh, sorry, that I think is, I always get this, it's either state or federally tax-free. I think it might be state tax-free. I don't know, right. one of the two. So it's also tax advantage. Then what I would do is start to look for two different types of opportunities, which is what I'm personally doing with that cash at the moment, or I'm on the sidelines. One is very unique opportunities that can give me so much padding um, that, you know, I, I can get comfortable with the idea of the asset value decreasing. Mm. Um, that I think I'll be okay, even in a downturn. And I think it's still going to perform well in a downturn to cash flow, probably what it's projecting, okay, within yeah. plus or minus a couple percent. So that's 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 uh, vertical number one. You mentioned before, tax-abated deals are a fantastic example of that without getting too complicated and too much detail. You're buying an apartment asset at market rate, normal deal. You're converting it into tax-abated in order to provide, mm. say, 50% of units to a certain affordable um, uh, client. And in exchange for doing that, you're reducing your taxes by about effectively 85% in a lot of these deals. Right. So all of a sudden your building is worth so much more because your your profit is much higher because your, your rents, in, in the way that it's done, um, if it's done correctly, rents don't go down, expenses are down by like 40%, mm. okay? 
And then it just hits the bottom line directly. And now your building's worth a lot more by the time you actually close on it. This is all while it's under contract. So it creates a ton of padding from the start to make it worth so much more that if the value goes down, the multiple goes down, I'm very comfortable. Okay. That's number one. And, and there are unique opportunities that doesn't have to be that particular one where like if someone gets such a screaming deal on a price for some unique situation, whatever it is, then it might be worth looking at. Right. Right. Number two is investing in stuff where you don't have to worry about the asset values decreasing. You have to worry about whether it's going to perform well during a downturn. So mm. the ATM is a really good example. I'm still investing in ATMs today. I expect them to depreciate. If they're worth a little less than a year from now because of the recession, I don't care. They're going to almost zero anyway. It's like computers, right? So what I care about is how they're going to do in a recession. I've mm. been to the previous recession with them. They, I know they perform well enough that I think my cash flow is going to continue very well. And so I continue to invest in them. There are other types of opportunities out there that are like that. So you don't have to worry about the asset value decreasing and it's probably going to do okay in a recession. That's something else to consider. Wow. That was a lot. And I know that we've been going for almost an hour now. This is a power hour. I think a lot for people to consume, but I think it's just important for people to understand that this is the way that you strategically approach private equity, real estate investing, cash flow investing. This is it. And yeah, so I mean, we, yeah. Yeah, I was going to say the question you asked me about what are you going to do? Is, I mean, that's literally I just gave you what I'm doing personally, you know, and my situation yeah. with, with the cash I have. So I have a question. Have you do you look at all into like private equity funds like micro PE? I know is standing up where they're investing in cash flowing businesses. You yeah, know, a lot of them have that. You know, they've been around 20 years. Owners fading out. They're bringing in processes, technology. Have you have you looked at some of those? Very interesting to me. Um not something I've built enough of a network in to have like a huge amount of deal flow come to me in. If you take a step back on this cycle for a second, you know, this start, the cycle started in 2009, call it. And this is a record long cycle we just had. It right. was extended because of pandemic stimulus. It was supposed to end probably in 2020 based on all the recession metrics and stuff. It still would have been a record long uh, cycle at that point. And so I stopped looking at risky stuff probably in 2015, certainly in 2016. So I wasn't, I didn't have a big enough network back then even to, to really be able to dive into like a bunch and try them. They become more interesting to me over time, but the timing's not been good. And I think right. the timing still isn't good because of those multiples. I think the multiples are going to change and that's when you want to get into those. So I will be looking at some of those if I can find them down the road. I'm not a good person to give you feedback on them because I've not been in them yet. Got it. Have you looked at any, I, I think some of the interesting things that are coming up are more luxury real estate asset investments. I saw one today of, uh, you know, like uh, car storage for people who've got like cars. But I mean, thinking about asset classes that are now moving, you know, as you do see a wealth divide and you see, okay, now there's this, this class that is actually investing in. I've seen RV storage. I've seen luxury car storage. Is that anything that you look at or, or have thoughts on it? Well, so RV storage in particular, I'm concerned about because there was a huge RV boom where a lot of stimulus money was spent on buying RVs. Mm. At a certain maintenance costs, they tend to break down, et cetera. So I'm a little bit bearish on where we're going to end up with, you know, supply and demand of RVs in the next 12 months. Will people still be storing them or will they be selling them? Right. right. Um, but I have been in self-storage facilities in the past that actually have uh, parking on site or an adjacent lot that was like a combined self-storage and a parking lot for RVs mm. or buses or larger, you know, boats or whatnot. Well, if you take a look at higher income areas in Florida, like Naples, I was right. actually invested in a self-storage facility that had parking and people used it for boat parking for six months of the year because they went back up to their home in New York, right? And then they came back down. 
that's probably going nowhere if someone is really wealthy and has that money, right? right. Um, boats are worth a lot of money, you know? And so it, it, you have to really look at every deal on a case-by-case basis to analyze it. You do have to be very careful with the recession coming up though. I mean, that's always going to be the number one thing on my mind for the next few months. Well, let's, uh, let's wrap it up with the fire round. I have five questions here for you. They should be quick answers. How do you keep learning? I read literally about two to three hours a day across many different sources and watch videos, all of it combined. I have to keep learning and I have to keep on top of the macroeconomic news so that I can stay away from the landmines. And especially today, it's a very dynamic environment. Prices are changing. Distress is increasing. I have to keep on top of what's going on. So I do that very proactively every day. Do you have one or two uh, sources of, of news that you trust? I purposely use a cross section because I want to combine mainstream media and non-mainstream media, more just charts and stuff. Because right. I do want to, and sentiment's very important for the mainstream media, right? Mm. Um, and so I can rattle off a whole bunch of them if you want. There would be one, like I, I really like zerohedge.com mm. because um, 50% of it, I'd tell you to ignore. It's like very conspiracy theory stuff, but it's Wall Street guys who started in 08 and who were just trying to like show really parse the data and tell you what's really going on when you read the unemployment report, not what you're mm. reading in the media. They're very good at that. So that's one. If you want just straight out charts with very little commentary, just a little bit, calculatorriskblog.com is really good. Um, it, it charts out a lot of the data that's released every day. And if you want to just take a step back, no one's telling you any opinion about it. Just look at the chart and make a, you know, an informed decision yourself. That's a really good place to go. Those are just two examples. What do you do to recharge your batteries? Yeah, probably not enough. I have two kids. They're 16 and 13. I don't really have time to recharge my batteries. Uh, I'm on the Stairmaster every day, seven days a week for about 40 to 50 minutes. So that's helpful. Unfortunately, during the week, I'm off on business calls while I'm on the Stairmaster. So, you know, uh, I, I once in a while I go for a drive. I'm a car guy. So that can happen also. Mm. Uh, but I, I'm guilty of not recharging my batteries enough for sure. Okay. We'll ask you that next time. Uh, <laughs> what's advice that you would give your younger self starting out to invest? I would say two things. One is think long-term. That is absolutely mm. critical because I've lived through it and I see the compounding over time. Slow and steady wins the race. That's number one. And number two is the, the public debt, you know, the, the federal debt is right. going to make investing much more challenging for predictable cash flow in about 10 years or so, probably going forward, not for the next 10 years, but after the next downturn is my main concern. So learn this investing, get good at it if you can, but beware of the fact that you may have to pivot out of it um, into the medium term. Got it. What's the best investment of time that you've ever made? Investment of time. So do you mean what I spend to prevent time use? Or no, no, no. Like, like, like if you think of, uh, I went and spent two or three hours here, that was the best investment of my time. Like where you go and you actually spend time doing something, whether that was at, you know, the meetups or reading, oh. like what's your best investment of time? Yeah. My best investment of time is literally reading the financial news and trying to stay on top of it because it just, it helps me so much to, you know, people talk about a soft landing. Well, I mean, no, this is the data, right? And I mm. only know it because I've done all the reading. And so I can come up with my own opinion that has nothing to do with what CNBC is telling me or any other source is telling me because I've done all the reading. And that is how I'm maximizing my long-term potential as an investor. Okay. And last and final one, this is always a uh, a favorite, which is what's the worst investing uh, advice that you've ever received? <laughs> oh, investing advice. Um, I would say, I mean, anytime at the end of a cycle, 
that you hear like your taxi driver or your barber doing something. <laughs> it's not that it's advice. It's just an indicator that you may not want to do that. And I mean, that happened yeah. in the last downturn and happened in this downturn, Bitcoin and all that. In the mm. last downturn, I was flipping homes. It's very obvious at the time if you really pay attention to it. And that's some of the worst advice you can get. Got just it. from timing perspective. Well, Jeremy, thank you so much. I know you're super busy. I really appreciate your time. I appreciate you. And thank you so much for sharing time with us today. No, absolutely. Thanks for ever still on here. Thank you for listening. I hope it was helpful. All right. We'll see you next time. Thank you so much for your time today. I have one ask, and that is please go on to Apple, Spotify, Amazon, wherever you happen to listen. And my ask is please leave us a review because we are a growing new podcast. Your reviews helps us understand, are we on target? Are we serving our audience? Or are there other things that you want to do? So thank you so much. See you next time.